out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Nice advice there, Jim. Hello, this is David Eastall. This is the C86 Show once again, bringing you the finest in indie pop and much, much more. As always, we like a special guest. This week it is the Bats, all the way from New Zealand's, because I spoke to member one time, well, no, not one time member, Paul Keane, still the member of the Bats on bass and much, much more. So I've got that interview that I'm going to play. It's a fascinating chat. You'll love it. Get a pen, paper, make notes. I will test you at the end. But before the interview, I think we should get the party rolling with some music. Indeed, maestro. This is your favourite of mine. This is um, Made Up in Blue. You knew I was going to play that. Well done, Darren Brown. Yeah. 
There was a lot going on in that song. That is uh, The Bats with the track um, titled Made Up in Blue from the album Daddy's Highway that came out in 1987, the same year as Huskadoo's Warehouse and also Prince, Sign of the Times. 87, probably the best year of music ever. Anyway, this is David Esau. This is the C86 show. I'm still sort of... um, kind of excited by that previous song because I don't know if you were paying attention hopefully you were but great bass line there from Paul Keane and that leads on nicely to what I'm about to say I spoke to Paul quite recently to find out more about life love poetry and being in an indie band from the 80s and it's still rocking and rolling all the way from New Zealand this is a um, interview we did Um, yes he was in New Zealand I wasn't But um, with the wonders of technology, we managed to get it together. So this is it. This is where, um, after a bit of a chat and admiring the landscape of New Zealand, as you do, um, I started to talk about life in the uh, the punk, post-punk period and the the early years of the uh, the Bats, who were there right at the early 80s. And this was Paul's response. Paul, take it away. Yeah, that, that's um, yeah, it's interesting. That uh, I, I guess it's the beginning. Uh, I suppose from our, uh, our influences and what happened before that with us, um, there was a definite movement towards um, get, breaking away from major record labels and the influence they had on what they would choose to push forward as the latest fashion. And um, I think we were right at the forefront of that with the early days of Flying Nun starting up. And that came came out of the fact that um, I'd been in a band called Toy Love uh, prior to the Bats. And we were sucked into that horrible corporate major record label uh, manipulation uh, where they they decided we must look a certain way and be a certain way. and. And uh, and they spent lots of money on recording us and and making us play every night of the week. And <laughs> it was a, a very hectic time. And we actually got some no, no, notoriety out of it. I mean, we did actually get top twenty singles and things like that. But um, the, I think only within New Zealand and, and Australia. And uh, didn't we, we, our, our sites were on the world, of course, <laughs> but that kind of imploded because we were just exhausted by by the, the relentless performing and touring and doing videos and all sorts of things. And um, we uh, from that we thought, bugger that, we don't want to be involved with major record labels anymore. And uh, and that's kind of how the bats formed, and we just wanted to sort of just play with friends and and. Uh, enjoy ourselves and play parties and, and that and, and yeah that's that's how the bats evolved and um, they'd come before that I suppose a, 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 a big interest in in bands like um, can and uh, velvet underground yeah um, and a whole lot of a kind of obscure stuff that wasn't really being played on on radio and um, and we found there were a whole bunch of other people around New Zealand uh, like-minded, <laughs> and we kind of grouped together, and that turned out to be all these people that started bands and and became the early Flying Nun yes. um, acts, really. Yeah. I get, I'm, I'm guessing here that the Flying Nun record label was absolutely pivotal to that music scene that you know was so kind of big in the in the eighties. Yeah, it, it, it certainly um, with within our our audience and the people that we related to, and 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 universities, uh, there was there's a, um, a an orientation tour thing that happens in New Zealand through all the universities where bands can get to play 
on, on a circuit of uh, of um, of university gigs, and um, that was that was amazing. Uh, we did quite a few years of those, and um, it, before the days of people having cell phones and and uh, internet, and yeah, <laughs> you know, so. Uh, there was a, a focus on what was happening in their lives with their music and their scene, and uh, there was uh, you know ama- amazing following. So people weren't distracted with all these other gamings and all that sort of stuff. <laughs> yeah. You know, so um, so yeah. what were you listening to in your in your teen years that you were sort of thinking, right, this is kind of this is the kind of career path for me. I just wonder what your sort of kind of. Uh, <laughs> well, I, I was. Um, um, lucky enough to, to be taken to England in 1966 with my parents when I was just a little boy of 11 <laughs> and um, I, I did the classic um, The Boat That Rocks uh, thing with a transistor radio under the pillow listening to Radio Caroline and um, <laughs> those sorts of uh, pirate radio stations um, Luxembourg uh, what was there there was another one wasn't there that was out out in, in the water can't I can't remember what it was I now. can't remember but I know John John Peel had this uh, one particular night show which was the um, the perfume garden that he had for a from sort of I think it was a seven hour night shift that he did for a while oh yes and that became yeah, incredibly yeah. famous because I think it was where you know he started playing Captain Beefheart and Frank Zappa yeah, yeah. and some early well, Mark well, Boland poetry as well y- yeah 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 um he was absolutely amazing and he, he was a big supporter of Flying Nun too he actually came out here for I think one of the anniversaries the 25th or something like that Yes. And toured around and yeah. So um, did you that music of the day that I um, should get back to your question was l- listening to things like the Trogs and Kinks and um, uh, Hollies and um, bands like that. So uh, the, um, I absolutely loved it. And the and the and then uh, um, not not long after that, I think it was like things like Loving Spoonful and um, those bands that kind of. We're almost at the forefront of that the um, the generation of love or the the summer of love type thing, late sixties. Yes. So then, yeah, the, and then which is back to, to back to uh, Woodstock again. <laughs> absolutely. So, um, yeah, yeah. So did the, so, the sort of there was the, obviously in the in the seventies you had the kind of glam bit of heavy metal and then you had punk and a bit of prog. Did any of that sort of come into your orbit? Yeah, I, I kind of like listen to anything uh, really back then. I, I loved loved uh, music. I loved radio. Beach Boys um, were big favourites of mine. And then the prog rock thing. Um, yeah, um, everyone seemed to be listening to Yes and <laughs> King Crimson and stuff like that back then. So, um, yeah, I, 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 I like aspects of that. And yeah, sometimes that you know, you'd be listening to something, people think this is absolutely amazing. You think, oh, no, it's not, it's crap. <laughs> and, you know, it'd be, um, oh, oh, who was I, who was I thinking? The guy that drums, you know, Phil Ian Collins. And, uh, and Phil Collins. What was his first Gen- band? He, oh, well, there was Genesis. Genesis. Yeah. yeah, I never really got into Genesis. No. Well, it's a tricky one. You had the Peter Gabriel years, didn't you? And then you had the Phil Collins years, and they were like yeah. two, quite two different bands. But anyway, that's all yeah. Good. So when yeah, you... so so yeah, so yeah, um, oh, yeah. I I guess um, it, it was um, when was it? Like early seventies. I um, we um, 
an English guy came over who had been playing in a band called 69 and over in England and his guitarist died and um, he brought a, lo- a load of really obscure music over with him, including Velvet Underground and um, turned us on to all this um, weird and wonderful stuff. Um, Heavy Jelly was, was one of them. <laughs> I don't know if you've ever heard of Heavy no, Jelly. I've never, I'm going to have to Google that next, actually. Heavy yeah. Jelly, that's, that's an extraordinary name. But uh, you'd definitely want to play yeah. a record by Heavy Jelly, wouldn't you? So then when, when you, you, you'd obviously had your first band... And then the fly, uh, and then the um, the bats. Did it? Yeah. And, and it was a four piece, and it's quite amazing because most people, when I look, you know, there's been a lot of members in a band normally if they've gone for that many years. But you have managed to somehow stick together as as a four piece. Did it? You know, when you got into the room and you started, you plugged in all your instruments and started playing. Did you just think, "Yep, this is it. We've got, we've got it." Uh, there was something really special. There was, um, and and it was that first year where we were just playing friends' parties and just enjoying the music, really. And Bob, um, you know, like uh, he, he was obviously from an early stage. You could see, well, he's a good songwriter, and he'd been in the Clean as well, and the Clean had done very, very well, and um, and they were having a bit of a recess at that, around that time. And we were all living together in the same um, house, and <laughs> and Kay and I um, part, were partners, so and we've stuck together all that time. So I think in some ways that's probably helped the band as well, having a stable couple in the band <laughs> holding things together, and um, yeah, and, and and Bob's it's very good with with his songwriting. Um, we just love but the same. They feel like the bats still, but they, there's, there's such a variety in there and such a, 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 a variety of moods. I mean, here's some... Oh, actually, Paul, you keep just slightly cracking up. I don't know if your reception... We sort of... Ah, I think, okay, I think you did slightly in there too. Is that you, better? Okay, well, I'll just try and yes, or hopefully. I think I think we had a a dip. There's a nasty big cloud just coming over. Oh, is that all right? That that sounds much better. Yeah, yeah. No, that's absolutely fine. So you were just saying. uh, I was just saying about the sort of dynamic of the band and the fact that that um, the four of you managed to keep together. And there's a couple which is quite extraordinary because I know from talking to um, Galaxy 500, and unfortunately, I suppose the numbers didn't really work for them because there was three of them and two of them were in a relationship. So they were kind oh, of, right. they were voting rights. I think they they could obviously dominate the, the kind of oh, sw- the swing. Yeah, three's a funny number, isn't it? Three's a, you, you but do, you managed to, yeah. to sort of, um, yes, I, that, that's kind of extraordinary that you and Kay were, were sort of a, a relationship and in a band and then managed to keep it going without something unpleasant sort of happening. In, in yeah, some... and and I think also we, we managed to, to do it so we thought, well, um, full-time, you know, playing, touring all the time, which we saw a lot of other bands doing, is pretty soul destroying, you know, like you're just going out playing the same stuff over and over and over. Uh, and so we, we got into this kind of cycle quite early on where we thought, well, let's just do a tour and then we'll come back and, and, and maybe write some new stuff, record, relax a bit, and then organize another tour when the, when the next album comes out or next release comes out. And, the, and the, that's tend to be the cycle we've 
we've followed uh, for quite a long time. But although there was a, a major record label thing stepped in at one stage when Flying Nun uh, got a little bit undercapitalized and got the um, help of um, a major label, <laughs> and, yeah. and they decided they wanted to make us look different and put. Um, uh, got a uh, makeup artist to uh, make Kay look more 60s. <laughs> it just it was so bizarre. We, we, they dragged her off to his photo shoot. They dragged her off to a makeup caravan somewhere, and us boys were sort of there waiting. And um, uh, I, I'm wondering what the hell is going on. It's taken an awful long time to uh, to do the the makeup. So I, I went over, and there was someone that didn't look anything like Kay, <laughs> and. Um, and I just said, well, this doesn't feel right. Now, <laughs> just you know, um, this this doesn't represent who we are. And um, so, yeah, we we put our foot down. But I don't think the record company liked that much. <laughs> no, because because to... I was going to say, in your early years, when you were, you know, even before your first album, you'd already toured Europe, though, hadn't you, and done, you know, like Britain and Germany, you know, supporting yeah, Alex well... Chilton, which was quite. A good number to get into because a lot of bands I've I sort of have sort of come across, I suppose you know in the local scene you know they don't really break out beyond their their sort of normal environment. But to to go from right, right. New well, Zealand being, to, to, to suddenly touring, yeah. touring the other side of the world and supporting Alec Chilton must have been quite a a moment, a kind of feeling that things were going well. Yeah, we we actually um, the Chills had done done that just prior to us, but like we, we, that had always been our intention to, if we wanted to um, make a mark in the world in any way, uh, without sort of going down the line of the major major record labels, um, we, we'd have to look after ourselves to a degree, and uh, we were you know planning to get over to England because that's where we we saw there's a lot of great music and um, and. Thought it was a way to sort of maybe get get in there somewhere, get recognised. Yeah. Um, and and we thought from from a lot of those um, tours that we were doing in New Zealand and actually doing quite well with orientations and things like that, and uh, we, we saved up enough money to go over for a kind of a I guess a touring kind of holiday for three months in in '86, and um, yeah. Um, Met up with Craig Taylor, who helped us with uh, some some dates, and and also helped us with uh, getting us into a studio in London to record Made Up in Blue. Yeah. And um, and lo and behold, Made Up in Blue, first uh, UK Flying Nun release, um, got uh, picked up as um, one of the singles of the week in Melody Maker, I think it was. Yes. Well, that was quite... This good. Because in those kind of... Well, in the UK, I mean, we had several kind of interesting and I suppose influential gatekeepers. You had John Peel, who was the DJ, but you also had the music press of people. You know, there was the NME, Melody Maker and Sounds and probably some some others as well, which... Um, right, right. But but those those were such key what the kind of key kind of outlets that if you got a John Peel session then you'd probably you know a John Peel play and then a session that would give people a lot of exposure you know because you know a lot of people would listen to it and you know the NME I think had a circulation of a hundred thousand a week that came out on a Wednesday so again it gave people a quick kind of um I don't know step up or leg up and, and off you went because after you did that particular release made up in blue which was the ep you then released the album which is yeah. in 87 which is daddy's highway which is kind of held as one of the the classic 80s um 
indie records of that decade. Yeah, it's interesting. I don't quite know why that one seems to stick, but um, I suppose it's been around a long time, and when people look up the bats, it pops up uh, because it's been around for so long. So, oh, yeah, that must be their best album. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, it's, it's, uh, it, it did get some, some good recognition, uh, both in, in the States and UK. Yeah. We actually um, recorded half of that uh, over in, in Glasgow when we were over in uh, over, over in '86. And when so, you were and when you were we recording, I was going to say when you were recording it, did it feel like this was kind of going to be your one of the a masterpiece? No, <laughs> it was pretty rough and ready. Uh, we we were staying in Glasgow at, at a, um, an acquaintance of a, a, a music journalist back in New Zealand. And uh, he had a little home studio and uh, said, I'm off to work now. Help yourself to the studio. <laughs> so we did. And so it was no no real planning involved in it. Um, and uh, and obviously it was a flat, so we couldn't really set up the gear and blast it out. So we we, were, we had to, to, to really approach the more, the quieter songs, I guess, and do more acoustic things. And Malcolm's... Uh, no, the kick drum, I think, was uh, his pedal up against a door. <laughs> so we used to, that, that was that was a real basic side of it. Yeah. And um and and we we were I don't know I was I was kind of engineering doing the mix on that and um, thought oh, it doesn't sound too bad and and the fact that we've got great songs and throw some harmonies into it um and don't rely too much on on fancy. Um, technology and things like that was focusing more on getting out the great songs and capturing those um, rather than going was bang in a in a big studio. Well, it was interesting. And we, yeah, I, I was when we got say, back you... to New Zealand, we, yeah, we we kind of went into just a, a, a lo- little local studio here and carried on um, finishing off the album here again with us at the at the reins, as it were. Yes, you sound quite. You you do sound very self sufficient because because in that kind of period, the eighties anyway, you had sort of, I mean, you probably had a lot of different little divisions, but the kind of obvious one you had that indie scene, which was kind of like very jingly jangly stuff, you know, which you know I grew to love and was part of that C eighty six world, and then you had the mainstream with that overproduced Trevor Horn sort of production sound, you know, like ABC and Frankie Go to Hollywood and. You know, oh, yeah, yeah. Bands like Duran Duran and, and Spandau Bally. So so it was kind of, you know, at that time, a lot of music was quite tribal. You were either in that camp or you in that camp. So, But being from New Zealand, you didn't probably get kind of that association with the fact that, with, with especially in that period, the 80s, there was a kind of a lot of political strife going on. So you, you kind of had to sort of, you know, nail your flag to the mask. Yeah, I think that's a cliche, and um, you, you had to say you you had to sort of be on the left or right, and and sometimes it was quite easy to make that choice because you just felt like you were a slight you know impoverished poor outsider, so you went towards the left and the socialist workers party. But you did you sort of pick up any of that kind of political kind of strife that was going on? Oh, most definitely. Um, yeah, um, certainly uh, around the uh, apartheid. 
thing. Oh that God, was yes, quite that was that was that strong as well. at the time. We were, yeah, yeah. We were all free. Um, what Mandela. political thing are you talking about? <laughs> well, I think it was. We had the miners' strike, which was quite a big ah. thing in the eighties. There had been rock yeah. against racism. There was the miners' strike, so there was this kind of movement, red wedge, where there was some big kind of let's get Labour into power, you know, and get out the uh, the Tory party and Margaret Thatcher. But that, mm. that that didn't work at all, actually. Um, but well, university yeah, the, the university thing. lecturers have written about sort of, you know, rock and politics for years and wondering if it made any difference. And I think mostly come to the, the agreement that it probably doesn't really. Yeah, I, I, I think the... Uh, the Obviously, the apartheid thing was there was a big protest movement for that in New Zealand. But uh, prior to that, it was, it was um, Vietnam uh, mobilisation things going out on marches, and then um, later in, in in the 80s, it was more the um, anti-nuclear and the um, protesting about um, atmospheric uh, nuclear tests in the Pacific. Yeah, um, and David David Longy came over and did his um, speech over in England somewhere. I was Scotland. I don't know. I can't remember now. Uh, <laughs> not very good with this history stuff. Um, and um, yeah, we 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 just became um, an anti-nuclear country, which was uh, you know <laughs> uh, it, uh, amazed the world. I think well, that's what the impression we got from our little island. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, well, absolutely. Yeah. Because then you know that period that you you did your first album, which was not the EP, but you know Daddy's Highway, right through to the mid '90s, which was. Um, was it Couch Master? I mean, you were releasing an album nearly every eight, you know, twelve to eighteen months. So, did that yeah, did yeah. did that period for you just with the four of you? Did it just feel like you were on this mission to, to you know, to record, tour, record, tour? You know, was it just like a, one creative high that you were on? I, I suppose it was. I suppose we were all young and energetic and didn't have families back then. And um, and Bob was still just writing all these great songs. They kept us coming out of them. I mean, he, he claimed early days that he had a, um, a thousand songs. And, um, you know, God, it must be a million now. <laughs> but he, he just, they just keep coming out. And um, he's phenomenal. <laughs> so, was that, so, yeah, so um, that was the truth. And the four of you, I mean, you know, that sounds like a sort of go- goss- gossip columnist. But, you, you know, the four of you sort of maintain kind of friendships and harmony, you know, within, within that. Because, you know, you know like we, we all know most rock stories don't, you know, from Fleetwood Mac to the, the, the Beatles and the Smiths, you know, things don't generally sort of go terribly well after a few years. But you, you, you did... I, yeah, I think that, that was down to what I was saying before about not constantly touring, you know, so we would have breaks from each other. And then... Um, Bob actually, um, we, we, were, we were all living together at one stage in the early days, but um, then um, Bob ended up shifting uh, back down to Dunedin, so we didn't see quite so much of him, and he, and he was sending us cassettes of songs that we would um, decide we'd really like this one and and um, make up our parts to it, and, and then we'd all get together and um, and have a, a practice, and it was yeah great fun, and we, we just let it go, let it flow, and um, yeah, um, play around and make noises, and if it worked, it worked. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so, well, you yeah. did create an amazing sound and an amazing body of work during that period. So yeah. when you were recording... We, we, we did... Uh, sorry, I, I was. Um, I, I just didn't really finish the answer to your question, did I? But um, I think we, we obviously, uh, from not being together all the time, we definitely uh, 
f- felt that the uh, we we got on better together. Yes. <laughs> I think if, if people throw themselves together and it's almost like solitary confinement, <laughs> yeah, like when you're touring, um, and you you have to get on pretty well with each other to to do that. Um, uh, and I think there, w- there were definitely strain times on tour when you're you know having to get up really early in the morning to drive to the next gig and then um, yeah a late night and people want to party and um, some some don't <laughs> so yeah there were always little tips and arguments but nothing nothing hugely serious you know no. we didn't get over yeah because the one thing I've discovered from doing this show that you know there's a sort of this is a, the five-year narrative and this is probably a lot of the the English UK sort of indie bands from that period but that could have gone into other you know different musical genres as well as um, decades. But mostly there was five years where, you know, a band got together, they would rehearse for a bit. After 12 to 18 months, you know, John Peel would give it a play. They'd get a John Peel session. That meant that they were starting to tour beyond their normal little kind of community of friends and family and anybody else they can emotionally blackmail to go and see them. And then they'd get gigs <laughs> around the country, you know, which was good. And then that sort of el- first album, you know, the honeymoon period was good. And then the, the, it would be the se- tricky second album. And, and the other thing that I noticed, that if anybody ever toured America, they would come, you know, they would almost have it, a tone in their voice like, we did America and then we split up because it just destroyed <laughs> us. So, so that's a kind of a, a very uh, kind of that's a story that I've heard a lot from from different bands. You know that. So the second album not good. Also, you know the business side and the record label and you know publishing and not really getting any money for it and just kind of grown to. Yeah, I think actually I really don't want to do this anymore. So, so but yeah, you know, so yeah. that's why I'm I'm just so impressed like, that, that you're. Yeah, it was like gorging yourself on chocolate cake or something like that. I mean, you, there's a limit to how much you really will enjoy, and and uh, you, know, you want to put to one side and have something savoury or have a break yes. from it. So it's it's a bit like that in a way. I mean, you can't constantly go out tour, 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 and 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 that constantly partying with people because you want to do that when you're younger and you want to be um you want to you want to make those connections with the the, the people that you're you're visiting in a town that are your fans and um and that's so it can be quite straining yeah. yes but then when but you were, lovely all the same but you just got to balance it <laughs> i know well you did some major american tours and you supported radiohead as well so that was obviously quite yeah. a number but then when you got to your Couch Master album in 95. That was going to be, that was the last uh, studio album that you did for about 10 years. Did you know when you were recording it that this was going to be kind of the end of a, a, a particular chapter in the band? Yeah, um, not really. Um, I think that kind of just slowly slid into that state because um, by that stage we, we, were, we were bringing up little children. And uh, our our daughter and Robert's daughter came on tour with us, and um, we bought nannies, well, partners <laughs> um, uh, of of both Bob and Malcolm came along and helped us out with nannying. And um, but when it got to stage where um, you know it was um, time to think about their schooling and settling down, maybe that's uh, that's around that time of Couchmaster. But Couchmaster was also a a bit of a throwback at that, you know, how how um, I was saying before about Flying Nun being uh, pulled into major label and lots of money being spent on albums and things like that um, and things getting a little bit out of control. And that happened with Fear of God and Silverbeat to a degree. 
um, we we thought bugger this we've we've lost something that we had uh, let's get back to just looking after ourselves in terms of recording so Couchmaster was was one of those sorts of things really yeah. and and it was also the start of the CDs um, I think that's a Originally didn't come out on vinyl, um, uh, and and we thought, oh gosh, we could um, we could fill up this um, CD with lots and lots and lots and lots of songs. <laughs> so, and uh, yeah, we got a bit experimental with it and played around with uh, noises and little doodles between between tracks, and we absolutely absolutely enjoyed that experience. And then after that, we did sort of step back a little but we did te- keep playing but uh, didn't tour um, overseas as much played New Zealand Australia quite a bit yes and um, and every now and again we'd go back in the studio and do some extra tracks and we bought out a com- uh, you know, like um, a, a, a thousands of tiny luminous spheres which is a kind of a pick of our, our best songs from our, our, our previous albums and added a few extra tracks into that, did a couple of EPs. So, you know, we, we did keep at it, but um, it was just a lot more low profile. So when and, you, uh, when you yeah. fast forward to the sort of the mid to, well, I don't know what they call it now, the, the noughties, 2005, <laughs> and you, um, you released at the National Grid. Did you? Oh, you did, yes. This was your kind of the first album, um, and it was also released. Uh, that wasn't released on Flying Nun, was it? No. Well, um, that that whole major record label thing, and the fact that CDs had sort of taken over, and also that whole internet thing was starting to creep in. Games, phones, cell phones. Um, MySpace was a thing back then, I think. Oh, um, my God, yes. Uh, so MySpace and Frenzy, uh, yes, yes. Yeah, and people, and, and music, uh, you know, the, the whole uh, techno thing um, just started to push through. So um, uh, I think Flying Nun floundered a little bit then, and, and the major company uh, uh, put put a lot of uh, Flying Nun into the basement, Uh got archived pretty much um, and had one person working 10% of their working week on Flying Nun. And um, we were um, all ready to record and trying to communicate with them and getting nothing back. <laughs> so, and uh, this was Warner's actually. Um, and uh, uh, we thought, well, what the hell's going on? So let's just record and release something ourselves. Because we had all these connections around the world and um, I, I arranged with uh, Arch Hill, I think it was. It was Ben... Ben Howe, who ended up um, uh, managing Flying Nun uh, after after a while. He, he had Arch Hill Records, and um, he uh, released Guilty Office, which was the one that came after uh, Bats at the National Grid. Yeah. And um, and then, um, yeah, I think there was uh, a lot of people were saying, what's happening with Flying Nun? What's happening with Flying Nun? And... Uh, Thank God someone um, got together and along with uh, Neil Finn and put some money in to actually buy back Flying Nun from from the major label and and, uh, reinvigorate it. And I think that coincided with the 30th anniversary, really, for Flying Nun. So does that mean, because that's one of the things that often tripped people up, was not understanding the admin and ownership and publishing. How did you navigate that? Because obviously... 
being on Flying Nun to begin with was probably a good thing. But I just wondered if you managed to say, yes, we still, we still own our music, or whether it's one of those, oh, God, it's a bit tricky and a bit complicated. Yeah, well, it, yeah, it's, it definitely, definitely is complicated. Uh, and uh, even with Flying Nun, it's complicated. <laughs> uh, and, and the funny thing is that those two releases we did um, ourselves with Pets at the National Grid in Guilty Office uh, is uh, probably when we got the, the best music press and best tours and best return on sales that we've ever had. <laughs> God. But, um, you know, we, we've just got a, a, a family kind of feel with Flying Nun and a, um, a, a feeling, a slight commitment there. I know some of the bands have pulled themselves away from it, but... Uh, yeah, we, yes. just, we just feel as a, there's, it's just old family, you stick together kind of thing. <laughs> well, absolutely. And then, obviously, this decade, you released Free All the Monsters and The Deep Set, which are both on Fly Now. So does that mean yeah. that you, you know, balancing being in the band and the creative dynamic and the label and your family life, does it feel like you've now sort of gone through those kind of slightly choppy waters and, it, and it's now just going to be part of your life? Like the Rolling, <laughs> like like the Rolling Stones, you're just going to be there in your mid seventies, coming you know out of surgery with you know various little complications, but saying yeah. no, the doctors have said I'm fine, I'm back on stage like Mick has this year. So I just wondered if now you're just looking at it as a, you know, this is part of my life and it just fits in yeah, with everything but, else. Uh, uh, yeah, and I think we've pretty much given up on the idea of it, it creating a, a healthy living for us. <laughs> so. We've all got day jobs that help subsidise our creative career, as it were. Right. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. Yes. Um, yeah. So, um, and and we're just probably doing it for the love of it now. But um, and also we do know that there are a lot of fans out there in the world, and we've got quite a, a lovely network of, um, you know, social media network of people that feedback. Um, Wonderful, uh, encouraging words to us. So, Which is always all, good. It's always lovely, yeah. Because um, yeah, it's, it's, it's so sweet when people say, your music changed my life, you know, like, uh, you know, uh, for the better. <laughs> you know, and, uh, you know, that just, oh, it's just so lovely to, to feel that, that you've, you've made some some difference to some people's life in a, in a positive way. And, and that's a lot to do with what music's about but but now i think our focus is on and it probably has been for quite some time it's been a global global feeling of um how do we help save the planet <laughs> and uh without without trying to uh, push sort of protesty words down people's throats so underlying in a lot of what bob's songs are there's definitely some big um, global oneness thing going on there, believe it or not. <laughs> yes, well, I know we we live in bizarre times, which I thought the eighties yeah. were quite bizarre, but um, and then we sort of became all a bit comfortable, and now it's all gone slightly strange. But yeah. um, yes, yeah. yes, I know it's not it's not good, and I was just kind of realizing, you know, having spoke to a lot of people in bands, you know, getting the kind of the engineer and the producer for these albums is such a critical thing. And I just wondered if you have over those decades 
and releasing, having sort of released over 10 albums at least, um, you know, if that is working better, because now you've, you, you've got this late, the latest album, The Deep Set, was, was uh, recorded and co-produced by Ben Edwards. And I just wondered if, if that's kind of a relationship that you feel like, oh, thank God, someone gets the band now. Yeah, um, I, um, we, we, we kind of uh, have enjoyed working with other people and, and Dale Cotton uh, was involved in uh, Free All the Monsters and that was, uh, both those sessions were, were great, great sessions, uh, but with, with this, we've just been recording, oh well, getting on for a year ago now, oh, come October, it'll be a year ago we started recording our 10th album. And uh, we thought, let's just pull it back and just do it like we did Daddy's Highway. We'll do it ourselves, and how we did Couchmaster, and um, and 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 we pretty much produced nearly everything we've done except for the um, Silver Beat and uh, Free All the Monsters. I mean, not uh, Fear of God. Uh, so uh, um, yeah, we, we've we've managed to keep um, a, a degree of control over most of our releases. Um, but uh, the people that we bring in to help engineer or produce are definitely co-producers with us. So yes. it'd be nice sometime. I would really love if, um, if we could find the right match of a person that could actually produce us and do some amazing stuff uh, to our music and not have to worry about um, it ourselves and feel like uh, taking us in the, in the wrong direction. Um, but um yeah, I don't know. I don't think it's really um, too broken in any way. No, <laughs> so, absolutely. Uh, I know, why, why try to fix it, <laughs> I suppose, at this stage? Because we were saying, just saying at the beginning, you know, you asked me if I'd seen the Chills film, which I hadn't. But there was all the go-betweens have had one, haven't they? And the wedding, pre- the wedding present, and there was the Slits, and I think L7. So there's a lot of bands who are sort of suddenly getting films and documentaries about their kind of life. You know, yeah, and I, I just wondered if, I, I, if if anything like that has sort of cropped up into your sort of aura. Oh well, we've actually been talking about it for like the last couple of years about what what could we do uh, and to talk, document our our career in in in, in film or video. And um, recently, the, those students that did that. Um, Garage alternative garage uh, radio station um, also had some who were doing journalism and documentaries, and they um, asked us if we could um, uh, be their subject. So, um, unfortunately, their their uh, uh, I'm sorry, I'm losing my words here. they they could only do an eight minute thing, <laughs> so they've done they've done a gorgeous little eight minute documentary on the bats, and um, uh, we managed to get that um, uh, through social media just just a couple of days ago. So um, you might be able to see it. I think you probably quite enjoyed looking at it. And it yes. So it's called Compilately It's called Compilately Bats. Completely yeah. Bats. I'll have to check that out. Yeah, Compilately. No, but... Do it the Compilately. Uh, com- yes. Yeah, yeah. Very good. <laughs> um, so it, is it... it might be hard to search. I could possibly send you a link to it because uh, there was a, some ownership p- uh, publishing type thing that was blocking them from making it public. 
um, oh, tricky. Uh, okay, which, well let's let's. <laughs> yeah, so I, yes, because so after yeah. that experience, have you sort of thought? Look, we've got this material. Look, I've just seen the wedding present film, the go betweens, the chills. Let's get one of those ourselves. Yeah, I was just so impressed with the work that um, the, uh, the, the 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 young w- woman that did the documentary for this ARA the student radio thing did yeah. such an amazing job of it and quite a few people have made comments uh, in the YouTube post saying we want to see more of this this just feels like a teaser <laughs> so yes. uh, um, I think she's uh, uh, I'm just trying to figure out how we go to the next step and because I'd, I'd love for her I haven't talked to the band about this yet, so, but I'd love for her to maybe uh, see if we can get some funding for her to do a, a fuller documentary on the bats because uh, yes. I think she's a um, lovely, lovely person to work with. She's only 19, Betsy Payne, <laughs> but she's so talented and so engaging and so committed. Well, that would be amazing. And what would you mm. say to your 18-year-old self, you know, if you were sort of thinking, look, I've picked this bit of wisdom up over these decades. We've been through some highs, lows, some moments, both good and tricky. So what I just wondered, you thought, God, I, I wished I'd known that when I was 18. <laughs> Probably down to um, taking a little bit more control over how we are presented to the world. Um, I suppose it's that horrible publicity, promotions, marketing kind of side of things, which a lot of musicians don't really embrace that much. They usually have someone doing it for them. Yes. And that's uh, what major record companies do, and that's how they get their success. And when you're on an indie, you don't really get much of that. It's more word of mouth. But word of mouth only really gets through to the people that are within a certain set uh, of um, like-minded and ultimately um, my way of thinking is we really want to be spread to those people that might not be in that set um, might actually enjoy our music because it's not exactly alienating music but they don't even know about it you know where there's a, um, a lack of awareness on a, a larger scale of who the hell we are yeah but often those kind of moments, I know it's a bit of a shame because you probably miss it while you're happening, but I, re- I realise with a lot of bands, you know, they're starting to archive their material and bring it out and have box sets and they're having documentaries. And then, you know, not only do the fans who knew them kind of kind of re-engage, but actually they sort of pick up new listeners as well. And people go, my God, I didn't realise that, yeah. you know, this band was so cool. I just thought, you know, it was just, uh, you know... A funny name, yeah. you know. So I guess there's still time for for you still being heard and and having various kind of you know things like Spotify and you know streaming. You know, it does mean that your music is more accessible now, even though financially you're probably not sort of picking up the big bucks anymore. Yeah, and Spotify's never going to get anything. Hey? <laughs> um, I actually we were just talking about Spotify last night and um, how um, people put playlists together and. Um, yeah, you know, so um, if you want, you know, cafe music or gallery music or um, something to drive to, and I thought, oh, maybe we should do that with the bats. We'll put our own bats playlist together. We could have bats by candlelight or uh, <laughs> dinner to the bats or 
dance your heart out to the bats. <laughs> so they put all these different playlists together so, um, with uh, you know tags on them that are going to maybe find new new fans. <laughs> yes, absolutely. And as we sort of approach the end of this decade and looking at the next with great optimism, um, what's in what what have you got sort of in store on sort of either gigs or album? What you know releases. Um, the, the, a new, the new album, um, which we've pretty much mixed. It's just in the final stages of that at the moment. We hope to have out by early next year. It's uh, down to record company uh, whether they want to do some digital releases before vinyl, because vinyl seems to be the thing. Um, but vinyl, unfortunately, when you live in New Zealand, takes generally six months to get manufactured. Um, so it's a bit of waiting. Um, yes. And we don't really want to organise a tour until that album is out. So in the meantime, we're just doing a handful of gigs here and there. We played at our arts festival here in Christchurch, our hometown, just yes. a month ago. And we're doing a seafood festival down in Dunedin coming up uh, the end of next month. And we played at, on the west coast of New Zealand at a, a taiko festival. So little little gigs like that, just local. Yeah, and um, hope hope to once the uh, the new music is released in some form um, that we can arrange a tour around it rather than arranging a tour hoping the release will happen and it doesn't. <laughs> yes, and I was just wondering because the other thing is, you know, you've been around now for three plus decades. Um, do you sort of, when you bump into other bands who've also been around for that length of time, do you sometimes, you know, possibly at the you know, when you were both young and happening, probably sort of gave each other the cold shoulder, but then sort of now you bump into each other backstage or, or in the studio, do you sort of sometimes just swap sort of stories and uh, give each other a virtual hug at the same time? Um, yeah, mm, the, I think what was our collection of music companions from our, our generation we've probably kept up a relationship with them for quite some time and and, um, and uh, it's been just more social rather than reminiscing <laughs> I think um, but, um, I'm just trying to think, we did do a gig with Wedding Present um, uh, a couple of years ago in Christchurch when they toured here uh, and we'd played with them in France back in early 90s with oh, a, a yes. tour with television, Les Enroquetibles tour or something. <laughs> um, and uh, we we thought, oh, great. Um, I think uh, David Gedge actually communi communicated with Kay a few times about Emmerdale and things like that. Because <laughs> <Excellent>. <laughs> I think he comes from a place where Emmerdale Farm was. Um, oh, was it called Emmerdale? It might have. Yeah. Oh Some yes, it was. it was. It yeah. was. Uh, yes, I can vaguely remember. I'm and we thought, oh great, we'll we'll play with them and and catch up. But it's he uh, unfortunately, I think I think he'd totally forgotten. I think he'd been doing a lot of touring and <laughs> mixing with a lot of people. So there was a little bit of a blank look from him, and, and that's as far as it went. <laughs> Indeed, but anyway, I'm sure he'll remember. And that is the last part of my interview with. Paul Keane from The Bats. A huge thank you for giving me the time for that interview. Um, all I've got to say now is goodbye. But before that, um, we could do some admin. I love a bit of admin. You can contact me, David Eastall here at The C86 Show. Just go to at C86 on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. I will be there. 
keep it nice, positive. Otherwise, don't bother. And um, also, all these shows that I've been doing for over three years, that's a lot of indie pop shows, one a week, if not more. Um, so if there's any indie band that you ever want to hear a feature interview with, just check it out. You can find that archive on Spotify, indeed. Uh, iTunes, Podbean, which is kind of my favourite, really, and Mixcloud. So just go to C86show. And that, to quote Jim Morrison, is the end. This has been David Esau. Have a great week. Here's some more music from the Bats. <laughs>